Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we have Brene Brown making a return to the podcast as a follow-up on our previous conversation. Many people think that hope is a feeling, like I have a feeling of hopefulness, but it's not. It's actually a cognitive behavioral sequence that's taught and modeled. And so hope is goal, pathway, and agency. It's got three pieces. We also have the news with the crew that you've known for the past year. And we got a Webby Award, which is so dope, which we'll talk about a little later. But I'm excited to think about what we can do with season two. I remember when I started the podcast, uh, I had a, a hope and a dream about what it could be. And, and it's lived up to those things. And, and we have so much more work to do. My message for this week is to remember that like all good organizing starts small. That it starts with like an idea and a dream. And then finding a couple people who also see the idea and dream as you do. And then like you build out and you keep pushing because one of the gifts is being able to see things where other people don't see them. And the thing about a critical mass is that the work is probably always critical before there's a mass there. And then like, how do you build the mass? It's like, it's step by step, day by day. Is that this work will always be more important than it is popular. So keep the idea, keep the dream, find people who believe it as well. And like build, build, build. That is like how you get to critical mass. Let's do this. And now the news, a segment that I call The Overlooked, where we talk about all the news that isn't just Trump that we should be paying attention to. With me, Brittany Packnett, former member of the Ferguson Commission and Obama's Task Force on 21st Century Policing and a leader in the education space, Samuel Sinyangwe, a data scientist, and Clint Smith III, a resident academic. Hey, y'all, it's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And I just got an Instagram, so at Sam Sway on Instagram, too. Oh, Instagram, Sam, out here. Follow Sam. This is Clint Smith, at Clint Smith III. And this is DeRay, at DeRay, D-R-A-Y, on Twitter. Uh, Please follow Sam on Instagram. He literally just got it and has, like, negative three followers, so... Sam is amazing. Wow. And, uh, so if you follow him on Twitter, he's he's a man on Twitter, but Instagram, he's trying to build build it up, y'all. Um, I just want to say that Sam's Instagram, just like his curls, make America great again, and not the things that Kanye seems to be purporting. I really don't know what's going on, and I've been a fan for a long time, and I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, a fan of Kanye or a fan of Sam's curls? Both. 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 I mean, obviously, anybody smart has been a fan of the old Kanye and Sam's curls. I don't want to say what I think is going on because it's not my job to, to make that call. But what I will say is it's certainly been an interesting week. Yeah, he's been all over the place. Like he I started with, you know, those pictures that he sent out with white supremacists making white supremacist symbols with their hands which was like I don't even know if he knew what was going on but that's what happened and then you know talking about Trump and something about dragon energy and then he (laughs) (laughs) and then earlier he (laughs) yeah now he's just uh, tweeted uh, that he loves Emma Gonzalez and and she's his hero and then she uh she shaded him on Twitter and which was interesting as well. What did she um, say? I he, didn't see this. What'd she say? I love it. She Emma. did, but it was like it was like the uh it was like a classy shade, right? Cuz she didn't even address him. She put a fic- a photo of um what's the guy's name? James James Shaw. James Shaw. And so like Kanye said uh Emma Gonzalez is my hero and then he put a picture of him with a shaved head and then Emma Gonzalez put a picture of James Shaw up and was like James Shaw is my hero, which was clearly an allusion to what Kanye did but using it to uplift James Shaw, 
who like save you know all these people's lives in Waffle House and so you know I'm I you know on a side note those kids continue to impress me by how uh how savvy they are with social media but but with Kanye it's just sad you know I mean I, I think there are a lot of hot takes out there around it and I think it, for me it's just been sad to to think about you know uh college dropout was like a really feels like a seminal moment in my life you know it's just I think about what that album and and the subsequent especially the the following two albums meant for me growing up um and like as a young person coming of age and and I think about that and I think about you know uh, I was talking this week about how you know college dropout and gifted hands by Ben Carson were these like two really important artifacts of my childhood and now the people who created them are these people I can't even recognize anymore and it's uh it's just like damn Ben like damn Kanye it's 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 sad I don't think it can be I don't think it can be overstated you know a lot of people are like well I don't really care about what Kanye says I care about what happened at Starbucks and I care about this and I care about that and it's like first of all we can chew gum and walk at the same time. But second of all, I don't think it can be overstated how much influence someone with that size of a platform can have on real matters of policy and mindsets. And not to mention the fact that as a black man, he is providing cover and fodder and frankly, an opportunity for people to fundraise in the name of things that um, can be, that are really harmful to all of us, including him. It is, you know, it's just a reminder that ideas are the foundation for the actions that come. And what Kanye is doing that's so dangerous is playing in to the rhetoric and the imagery and the language that like creates the conditions for things like the Muslim ban and the conditions for things like you know, Trump's continued statements about how Chicago's like a wasteland of crime and poverty and, and poor people and things like that. And and Kanye just so willingly and willfully walking into that was just sort of wild. And even if this is like a ploy for the album, it's just a dangerous ploy. So I'm hopeful that we'll we'll see celebrities use their platforms in different ways and not like this because there are a lot of people who don't plug into the to what's happening in politics every day. So this actually becomes like a huge splash and even you saw Kanye do a shout out to that uh, the right wing reporter that none of us had heard of before he shouted her out. It's like those ideas are like dangerous, you know. She literally was like, "We're making up police brutality. Mm-hmm. Everybody's a victim. Black people are just victims, and we need to move on." And you're like, uh. "Like part of the reason why we talk about the past is the past has been such like the past is how we got to the present, and there's so many decisions that were made before that have led to these outcomes." Plus, this whole free-thinking rhetoric implies that any of us who disagree with those ideas are somehow mentally bound, that we are incapable of thinking for ourselves and have no agency, right? That black woman who's a a, a right-wing commentator that you were talking about, DeRay, that Kanye shouted out was like, I'm not, you know, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm just free. And I'm like, so are the uh, the rest of us in mental bondage? Like, how deeply offensive to the millions of black people who do not agree with you. There's not something just invariably wrong with all of this. Um, it's really, really amazing in all that has been happening this week um, that we found out that we won not one, but two Webbies, which I still can't believe. Um, pew, 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 this, pew, 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 We won Best News and Politics podcast as awarded by Webby, the Webbies themselves. And for that category, we won the People's Choice Awards. And so we're just... So, so Dang. thankful to every single one of you who subscribe, who listen, who tell your friends, who come to the live shows. We couldn't be doing this without you. Boom. Double Webby out here. 
That's right. wild. We are we are on our way to the we got, right? <laughs> if you just add the, the webbing to the beginning. Okay, we are okay, one Clint. we are one fifth of our way to the we got. The so question I have in my next. mind is who's gonna be winning the Grammy from the group? Like I could totally see the Emmy, the Oscar, the Tony coming because we've got a lot of talented writers and all that kind of stuff, but like Who's going to win the Grammy? They give Grammys for the best spoken word album. Dude, you're going <laughs> to get the Grammy. It was like, that's me. Right. That was like a very <laughs> humble. I got that. That was great. Da, da, da. <laughs> hey. They mostly just give it to the people who read their audiobooks. Like Obama won best spoken word album. But I'm coming for you, Obama. We got that W. But not like that. Two, two Better watch that over. Secret Service. <laughs> right. Sorry, feds. The feds yeah. listen. Oh, my gosh. So on a I have less... no segues to the news. My bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. On a less sort of upbeat note, so my piece of news is about ICE. So this is a report that came out in Injustice Today uh, and is about, the headline is, New Documents Reveal How ICE Mines Local Police Databases Across the Country. So apparently there are these databases, there's a database called CopLink that law enforcement agencies, including you know the LAPD and a number of law enforcement agencies around the LA area, including in Massachusetts and a number of other jurisdictions, uh, are sharing data with ICE uh, on people that they sort of suspect uh, or are considered suspects to them, and uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, including you know if they label somebody uh, as a gang member, if they label somebody uh, as a suspect for for a crime, or if somebody has a connection to that person. Um, they are placed in this database, and ICE can access that and use that to find those people and detain them and, and potentially deport them uh, if they're undocumented. Uh, and so, you know, what's fascinating about this is that when we talk about uh, ICE cooperation with state and local law enforcement and the actions that have been taken in California where they passed a law to limit that uh, data sharing and to limit that cooperation, uh, and even in Massachusetts they also passed a law, these databases are still uh, operational. ICE still has access to these and can still use this data to, to target people, um, even despite those laws. Um, and so it's really dangerous when you think about you know, even if you have an, a relationship to, if you are associated with somebody who's in this database, you can then be targeted. Uh, and it just shows the reach that ICE has now to actually find people, uh, target them, arrest them, and deport them from this country based on, you know, the slimmest of justifications, really just being connected with somebody that they uh, happen to think was a target for, for deportation. I'm really glad that you brought this up, Sam, in part because... I think we uh, have been rightfully outraged about the the news that we've gotten about Cambridge Analytica and the way Facebook data has been mined um, to really alter the course of this country and many countries. And we were rightfully outraged about those things. And yet I can see two things happening with the information that you're talking about. One, that people either won't pay attention and it will go underreported. Uh, and or two, that even if people know about it, they will not have the same amount of outrage for the way that government entities are collecting our data as they are about the way private entities collect our data. And both should be equally as concerning to us. Like, privacy is a democratic principle. Uh, the fact that we should have a reasonable right to it is something that is enshrined in the Constitution. And so many people who just kind of believe we should trust the system 
would feel that, well, you know, the police need to collect the data that they need to collect and ICE needs to collect the data that they need to collect. And we should all just trust the system. It's really, really easy to do that when the system has always worked for you. However, when you walk around every day at risk of deportation or detention simply because of the way that you look and having nothing to do with your actual status, you know, that's a very, very dangerous position to be in. And it should concern all of us, whether we are immigrants or not, whether we are undocumented or not, that should concern all of us because it is fundamentally in misalignment with democratic principles. So I found two things uh, particularly unsettling about this. I mean, there's a lot that's that's really unsettling, but the two things that really stood out, one was that with CopLink, uh, law enforcement can search through all of this data on people. Uh, and some of those people have had contact with the police, but have had no conviction, right? So if you were arrested um, and then later found innocent, you are still likely to be in this database and sort of aggregated alongside all of the people who actually were convicted. Uh, secondly, even if you are convicted, what we know and have talked about on this podcast all the time, um, and it's worth repeating all the time, is that like criminality is subjective, right? The, so this idea that the rhetoric of, oh, we're just using this to catch criminals or criminals are the only people who are in it, um, one that isn't true. And then also, even if it is true technically, the behavior um, that constitutes as uh, as criminal in one context is often not criminal in another context. And, and you know, we've seen over and over again, whether it's the Ferguson report or the Baltimore report um, or the, you know, the, the ways in which undocumented folks are often deported for a broken taillight or, you know, example after example after example of all of this um, all of these things that illuminate the subjectivity of criminality. Now, so I was arrested in uh, for the first time in the protest in St. Louis at the Department of Justice building, and they took our DNA swabs. And I remember tweeting about it, and there were uh, reporters who wrote and sort of explained like how that happened. And it all goes back to a court case uh, that was decided the Supreme Court. It's Maryland v. King, a 2012 court case, because Maryland had expanded its database to not only include the DNA of people who were convicted of crimes, but people who were arrested. And this happened with somebody, he was arrested, they took his DNA, they linked his DNA to a crime, and, and again, he he appealed and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. Here's what the court said. The legitimate government interest served by the Maryland DNA Collection Act is one that is well established. The need for law enforcement officers in a safe and accurate way to process and identify the persons and possessions they must take into custody. So what they're arguing here, in his opinion, is that DNA collection is no different than photographing or fingerprinting people. And it's like, that's actually a huge distinction. Uh, Scalia actually joined the dissent and wrote like a blistering dissent of this court case because of the precedent that it opens. And again, you see the implications with ICE. The other thing that I'll remind people, and we've said this in the podcast a million times, is that in the 2009 House Appropriations Bill, there's a quota for ICE. ICE has to attain a minimum of 34,000 people a day. Only law enforcement agency at the local, state, or federal level with a minimum arrest, a minimum quota. Anybody in Congress can help us introduce legislation to end that, and that should be a priority. So if you follow me at all on social media, on any platform, you've seen me talk quite a bit about a young woman named Shakisha Clemens this week. Shakisha was with her friends late night at a Waffle House in Saraland, Alabama, which is in Mobile County. Uh, 
and had asked for plastic flatware to go with her meal, um, was told that she was going to be charged 50 cents. And when she and her friends said that they had gotten plastic flatware before from Waffle House and had never had to pay, um, the police were called on her and her friends. And a lot of us have now seen a video where Shakisha was sitting in a chair when not one, not two, but three officers, all white men, approached her, um, began to yell in her face, threatened to break her arm, wrestled her to the ground, partially disrobed her by pulling down her top, exposing her breasts to the entire restaurant, moving their hands up to her neck to choke her, all while um, the white patrons that can be seen in the rest of the video continued to finish eating and dine quietly. Suffice it to say, I am continuously appalled, not just with what happened to Shakisha, but what happens perpetually with Black people and Black lives and Black bodies in this country uh, at the hands of police. And uh, Waffle House's statement thereafter was nothing like the Starbucks statement uh, and series of statements and efforts that we have heard since the incident in Philadelphia, where two black men were arrested while waiting for their friend. All Waffle House did was essentially put out a paragraph that said, we believe that calling the police was justified and wait until all facts are shown as if we hadn't all seen the video already. What's more is that the public outcry has not been nearly as swift or as loud for Shakisha as it was for the two men at Starbucks, even though the same circumstances around presuming the guilt of black people and therefore calling the police on them uh, uh, was present in both circumstances. And so I find myself um, thinking about a couple of things. One is the continued criminalization of blackness and that whether we're asking for something or waiting for someone or playing golf, as it happened to four black women who were uh, had the police called on them for playing golf too slowly. And I said that correctly. You heard that correctly. No matter what it is, just for doing it while black, uh, we are seen as criminals uh, and blackness is seen as a weapon. And so um, as long as that continues to be the case, we'll continue to have issues like uh, what Shakisha is dealing with right now. Um, Shakisha was charged with disorderly conduct and uh, resisting arrest, uh, even though the video shows the opposite. Uh, and so we're certainly hoping to see those charges be dropped um, and the Sarah Land Police Department go through a number of changes in order to ensure that nothing like this happens again, as well as other demands that are coming directly from the community, from the Clemens family, and from activists down in Alabama. Um, if you're thinking right now, what can you do uh, given this situation? Certainly the family is asking people to boycott Waffle House. I personally will not be going in and getting any breakfast there. Um, there are petitions that are going around that people can sign. Um, but I think most importantly, it's important to continue to say Shakisha's name to make sure that the response that she has received and the support that she receives is not any less than that of a man. It is really important that we reckon with the kind of particular assault that black women have endured in the history of this country. You know, if we are not um, clear about the grievous sexual nature of what happened to Shakisha and what has happened to black women over time at the hands of often white men, um, then we won't actually have the proper amount of outrage when things like this happen. Um, we can believe black women when we talk about our suffering and what is happening to us, because often people will say, well, I need to hear both sides uh, when it comes to what happened to black women. Uh, you know, I really wish that folks were defending Shakisha the way that they're defending Sarah Huckabee Sanders today, because if we actually say that we stand with women, uh, then that's what we have to do for all women.
Yeah, and kind of just like I, I was mentioning before, I think this is yet another example of the subjectivity of criminality. And I, and I say that because I think of my own experience in college. I went to college in North Carolina, and there were a lot of Waffle Houses and, and cookouts and all sorts of different iterations of late night diners. And I think about how often I went there. Um, and at these diners, there would be these sort of white frat bros who had, were coming from a, a party at 2 a.m. Uh, and were super drunk and and were would be incredibly obnoxious and would be like breaking plates and, and screaming across the room and um, pushing one another. I mean, just, you know, all sorts of, of behavior that took place in, in those sorts of contexts. And I think about how, you know, over the course of those four years, um, in which I saw that happen in, in different ways almost every weekend. I never once saw the police called on on any of them. And and again, I think it's a reminder of the way in which black bodies and, and, and the specific, the sort of specifically uh, egregious way in which black women's bodies um, are criminalized and, and, and that people, that police officers specifically um, believe themselves to have dominion dominion over and to uh to have the right to um physically and violently intervene in someone's physical space and in their body when when it is clear that it is absolutely unnecessary and and again i think this is another example of uh of a question of like violence is a function that is inherent to policing and so if you call a police officer to to a place it should not be a surprise um especially when the person is uh, is black that they will respond with violence even when they don't have to, right? Because it is almost embedded into the f- very function of what it means to be a police officer. And this is a, a reminder that we have to to reconceptualize and reimagine the very idea of like what we expect police officers to be doing um, in our society. You know, there are 18,000 police departments in the country. And we when we created the first public database of use of force policies and police union contracts, it was actually really hard to find that stuff. It just wasn't easily accessible. And as we've been thinking about Sarah Land and other police departments across the country, it's not easy to, to understand, like, what the use of force is. It's not public or, like, what the discipline process is for police officers. These are these are still sort of secretive things, and they shouldn't be secretive, especially for an institution that has that much influence on uh, on communities and, and that much power to impact and interrupt people's lives. So much of the work around police violence, especially when the protests began in 2014, was around violence that resulted in death. That was sort of like the way we all had thought about it because the police killed Mike Brown. As we continue in this work, we know that the police are violent in ways that don't just result in death. And that when we start to understand violence more broadly, we start to begin to understand the way that women are just absent from the overall conversation. So when we look at the violence that results in death, it is majority men. When we look at the violence that doesn't result in death, like from the data we have, we see that women are victims of sexual assault. Women's, women are victims of the kind of assault that Shakisha uh, faced. That women have a unique experience with regard to police violence that like the public conversation has not yet caught up with. Uh, and we need to do that. So I just wanted to bring up briefly uh, a new paper uh, and a really important paper that has just come out a few weeks ago from uh, William Darity and Derek Hamilton uh, and a team of other researchers uh, from the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity. 
And it's called What We Get Wrong About Closing the Racial Wealth Gap. Essentially, this paper is is just sort of debunking a lot of the myths around the racial wealth gap. And I don't have time to go through all of them that they provide, but I just wanted to give a, a snapshot of some of the things that, uh, that they bring up because they're really important. And so the first myth that they talk about is that greater educational attainment um, or more work effort, quote unquote, will close the racial wealth gap. And we know from the research that that's not true. We know that even with post-secondary education, black Americans lag far behind their white counterparts. And to quote Darity and Hamilton, it takes a postgraduate education for a black family to have a comparable level of wealth to a white household with some college education or an associate degree. The, another myth that they bring up is home ownership. Um, and I think, you know, this is a, a, a one that's interesting to me because I read a lot about housing segregation and the history of home ownership and um, one that I want to sort of dig into some more, but essentially they're claiming that the evidence suggests that even if blacks owned homes at the same rate as whites, that that wouldn't close the gap, which which makes sense because blacks who own their homes um, encounter large racial disparities in home values and their black homes don't appreciate um, for black homeowners in the same way that they do for white ones. And that's a product of discrimination in housing and lending, as well as reflective of existing patterns in segregation. Um, couple other things that they bring up, uh, and I'll just do this last one, but uh, black people saving more money will close the wealth gap is one of the myths, um, which is also tied to another myth that black people, if they just had more personal responsibility, could close the wealth gap. Um, and this is also, again, empirically untrue, right? According to this 2004 paper um, from Maury Gittleman and Edward Wolf, um, who used data from the panel study on income dynamics, even once you control income, Black families actually have slightly higher savings rate than their white counterparts, right? So the the question, the idea that like, oh, if black people just save more money and weren't, you know, spending it on Jordans or if, uh, or if they had more personal responsibility and, and worked harder, all of those things, again, are one, they're violent and harmful cultural caricatures. It's also just untrue. So this is yet another study substantiating what we know to be true about the differences in wealth, which really is the sum total of all of your economic resources between black and white Americans. And, you know, oftentimes we hear about, you know, this conversation about it's class and not race or it's race and not class. Uh, And it's important to mention that, you know, a a lot of those conversations use income as the proxy for class, uh, but income is actually not a good proxy for class. So according to a report from Prosperity Now, black families would need to make between two and three times as much income as white families in order to be in the same class if you define class in terms of wealth and not income, right? So when you look at what you said, Clint, around education, you know, given the fact that you know a, a black college graduate uh, ha- still has less wealth than a white high school dropout, you know, education itself is not going to fix the wealth gap. Um, given the fact that families making similar incomes uh, between races actually have vastly different levels of wealth, that actually just improving income itself is not going to fix the wealth gap uh, alone. And so what that tells me is that we need a multifaceted solution, and we need a solution that is actually using the right metrics to evaluate progress. And I think wealth is sort of that ultimate metric that if we can close that gap, we can actually uh, close the economic gap between black and white Americans. And the only thing I add is that, you know, people often are like, we don't know what to do about closing the wealth gap, da da da. But it's like, let's think about how we how the wealth gap got built. It's like, what happens when you start a country on exploited labor? And what happens when you enslave a whole lot of people and it's free labor for you? And 
you know, slavery for other people. Like, that this actually came from somewhere. And the way that we distributed wealth for white people was really intentional. It was through housing. It was through education. There's a blueprint for how we could do this at scale. The government has a responsibility correct to correct the problem that it created. And we need to figure out how to talk about that uh, responsibility in ways that don't make it seem radical. Like, it's not, it's not radical to say that the disparity that we... Uh, that exists inside right now is a result of a set of choices and that like we can make different choices. The radical piece is that we actually have to fight for it and make that claim. Like that is the sort of wild radical thing. But the fact is itself is sort of like a basic, it's just true. So I'm hopeful that uh, the work that this, this new paper did, the work that all of the racial wealth gap stuff that's becoming much more part of the public conversation recently, I'm hopeful that that like leads to some change soon. My piece of news is about uh, dental care. I'm fascinated with this. I'm hopeful that uh, we can get uh, an expert on this on the show soon. But I was reading an article called, it's called The Class Politics of Teeth. And it was in Descent Magazine, Descent Magazine. And it talks about, there are a couple of things that stood out to me. One is that more than one out of three low-income American adults avoid smiling because of poor oral health, according to a poll conducted by the ADA. I thought that was interesting. In 2000, the U.S. Surgeon General reframed dental disease as, as oral disease, and oral disease is a public health crisis. That it was a silent epidemic, that gum disease and cavities were have reached epidemic proportions. Uh, and, you know, the, the dental profession actually began in Baltimore, my hometown, and the place that I live in. So that's just a random shout out to Baltimore. Just going to put that in there. It doesn't really have to do with this story. Uh, the the other thing that I'll say, what I thought was really interesting is that according to federal data, between 2000 and 2012, the percentage of Medicaid children receiving at least one dental service had climbed from 29% to 48%. But that still left more than half of the children in the program, roughly 18 million, who received no dental care at all. And here's the sort of wildest thing is that an estimated 74 million Americans, including nearly half of elderly and disabled Medicare beneficiaries, had no dental coverage in 2016, far higher than the rate of Americans who were medically uninsured. Now, the interesting thing about dental care is that some of the dental, some of the like doctor lobbies have actually lobbied against some of the things that would expand dental care, sort of highlighting how the the economics of it might be impacted or this notion that like they won't be able to train as many people. But you think about some of the rural areas in America where like there just aren't dentist offices. Then what you see is like programs actually sprouting up to, to get people dental care. But dental care is actually a huge part of like people's health in general. And this article made me think deeper about like how dental care is just like a it's just not a conversation when people think about health. The last thing I'll say is when I was a TV human capital in the school system in Baltimore, we were always trying to figure out how do we get people to to like use vision and dental like more thoughtfully and just like more often. And there are a lot of people in the medical space who actually don't have great strategies for this. Like I was shocked as the person who managed the healthcare for the school system to be in meetings with people who like this was all they did all day and like really couldn't help us brainstorm about the dental vision part of the work. And I thought my experience was unique and this article helps me realize that that was not the case, that this is a widespread issue. And I'm glad you brought up schooling, DeRay, because that was the first thing that I thought of when I read the article. I remember teaching. I used to teach third grade in Southeast D.C. And um, about once a quarter, maybe even as often as once a month, there would be a van that would come by. And the the van was a van that would provide um, dental health screenings for the kids. Um, And it wasn't until I became much more familiar um, as a teacher with the 
with really the details of educational inequity that I realized not just how much poor health can affect um, a child's educational outcomes, but how much poor dental health can. Um, and so I was reading some studies from uh, Pew Research, um, and we know that um, dental problems negatively affect school attendance and performance. Obviously, that can lead uh, to difficulty eating, speaking, socializing, and sleeping, all things that are important to the social-emotional development of a child, both inside of school and outside of school. And they also found through a 2011 study in North Carolina that students with poor dental health were nearly three times more likely than their healthy peers to miss school due to dental pain. Uh, and so I just think that all of all of these details are really important because if people um, who are, are working in industries where this can take an effect are not paying attention to those things, we are due to not reach the kind of outcomes that we want. I also think it's really relevant because, you know, that van was a charity service, right? I mean, there were essentially people who recognized that this was a problem for elementary age children in um under supported areas of DC um, and sent this thing out once a month. And I'm very sure they were doing the very best with what they could, with what they had rather. But because that was a charitable solution and not a systemic solution, there were lots of young people who still did not get what they needed. That van could provide screenings and certain uh, healthcare supports, but you know they couldn't do braces. They couldn't do a lot of the things that you actually need a full-time dentist or an orthodontist to do. And you have to have good healthcare in order to access those things. Um, and it's just a reminder that systemic solutions are the things that work here. Charity is wonderful and we appreciate the people who give it, but until we come up with real systemic solutions to the kinds of things this article covers, uh, we're not actually going to see real change. Yeah, and speaking about the systemic solutions, you know, we look at the s solutions that have been offered to date. You know, a lot of that is focused on children, but not adults. Uh, and that was a choice that was made, right? So we look at Obamacare, for example, those 10 essential health benefits that, uh, you know, every plan had to include, you know, children's dental insurance was one of those 10 things, but not, not much was done around adults having access to, to dental health care. And I think that is a huge gap. We see that in Medicaid as well. Uh, and uh, and in Medicare, uh, and so you know we need to be able to think about this more broadly than than children. Although obviously we need to close the gaps that continue to exist among children, and think about you know for adults for the you know the vast majority of time that that we're alive, we're adults, and yet in this country you know that is the the hole, right? That is the gap where you don't really have access to dental health care uh, in so many places. And so what kind of ways can we adapt the existing health care programs, whether that's Medicaid, Medicare, thinking about the health exchanges through Obamacare to make sure that this is a requirement and not something that is optional. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Pontiac the People's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. 
Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go. And Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. And here's my fresh conversation with Brene Brown, the incredible uh, social worker and professor who you might know from her TED Talk. We had a previous conversation at Riverside Church. 
about race and shame and guilt and trauma and joy. And this is our follow-up conversation. I learn so much every time we're together. I hope you do too. Brene, welcome to Pot of the People. Thank you. There was so much that we talked about in the last one. So I know. I'm excited to jump right in. I was thinking, you know, one of the things you said that I like still think about is this idea of it's hard to hate up close. Mm-hmm. And I thought about it more and I was like, slavery is really up close, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, when I see her again, I'm going to ask her about that. So you're here. Yeah. So that, you know, that's a chapter that I write. But what you'll see is there are two exceptions and it's physical safety and dehumanization. And those are the two exceptions, because when I was talking to people about belonging and the courage to stand alone, and people would say, you know, you've got to get close up, you've got to look people in the eye. I was like, are there any exceptions to that? Right. And what? And I went back, actually, it was the first time I had a long time in my research where I'd gone back to the same research participants and said, let me ask you a question. I'm, I'm looking at this data, and I see that we have to move in toward people that we disagree with. Are there any ground rules there? And the answer was repeatedly saturated through the data, physical safety and emotional safety. Hmm. And so I was like, physical safety, I completely get. But I really wanted to dig into emotional safety because that is a, I think, for me, that feels like a slippery term. Um, I've seen people use it as a way of saying, I don't have to listen to you because I disagree with you. Yep, yep. Does that make sense? Yep, yep. Like a deflecting from addressing the content? Yeah. Yep. Or conflict. Like, yep. So I was like, help me understand emotional safety. Help me operationalize that. What does it look like? And they and basically the answer in the data was when your beliefs dehumanize who I am, then I don't I'm not called to move in closer to that. Yep. So physical safety and dehumanization I think are the exceptions. So so racism is like dehumanization at scale. Is that what you're saying? Oh, it's completely dehumanization at scale. It it is completely that. And I think many of us, well, not not enough maybe based on the research I'm reading now, but a lot of us studied kind of systematic dehumanizations when we talk about the Nazis and the Jews, World War II. But what what I think is missing from that discourse is how subtle and quiet – the most effective systematic dehumanization is. What's an example of quiet, of like the quietness there? Language. It's the words we use to describe people. The words we use to describe people. And so I think it's always language. And I think it always starts, I mean, and it starts with illustrations, language, art, design. It's, it's a very subtle, insidious marketing campaign. And then it has more obvious, I, I, you know, we see that today because I think... You know, we have an administration that's provided cover for egregious acts of dehumanization. But I think it starts very subtle. One of the ways that the sort of language works with whiteness is that like whiteness is never actually sort of like bad as a thing. It's always these like outside, it's always these independent actors, but like color, people of color always like, it's always the whole that's complicated every time. How do how do people and I'd be interested to see what the literature says about this. Two things about trauma. Yeah. One is like how do you how do people find hope in the midst of it? Like yeah. is there like a thing, a recipe? And then like I often think about this notion of um, I don't think we've talked about this. Like I fell off a whitewater raft. Did we talk about this? No. Have you ever been whitewater rafting? I have. Did you fall off? I did not. Oh, lucky you. I thought I was going to die. I was on the junior path. The fam- <laughs> I was on the family raft. <laughs> it's like not. There's not really like. Rapids. No, there was white water. It was terrible, but you know, I was crazy. still on the family thing. Okay. So did you fall off? I fell off. Thought I was going to die. Shout out to the guy who saved my life, Brian Wedge. 
but I'll never forget it because I was I was like trapped, right? And, yeah. And like in that moment, I was I was trapped in the present. All I could think about was like my next breath. And I and I think about that because I think that that's what trauma does to people is that you get trapped in the present, right? Like when you're experiencing trauma, whether it's poverty, whether it's like a crisis, and you're like laser focused in that moment. And the challenge with that, I would say, and totally pushed me here, is that when you are trapped in the present, you like you not even forget, but like your ability to imagine is greatly diminished because like you are so focused on the here and now. And what does it mean that there are like whole generations of people sort of trapped in the trauma? And like, how do we, how do you like get untrapped? And like, how do you sort of maintain hope in the face of, of what seems like intractable trauma? I think there are people doing, people that have far more expertise in this than I do, doing amazing work on this. Like the trauma-informed schools movement is something that we're, we're really looking at. So, but I'll tell you what my experiences studying trauma and, and talking to people around trauma just for the last two decades. The first thing, the first word I want to use is despair. So I think the opposite of hope is despair. And the best definition I've ever heard of despair comes from Rob Bell, a theologian, um, and kind of on a progressive wing of theology. But he said, despair is believing tomorrow will be just like today. Um, and that, that goes to your kind of stuck in time situation. Like there is. And then hope, and this is what I think is so powerful. I'm thinking about Schneider's research on hope, and many people think that hope is a feeling, like I have a feeling of hopefulness, but it's not. It's actually a cognitive behavioral sequence that's taught and modeled. Hmm. And so hope is goal, pathway, and agency. It's got three pieces. In that order? Yes. So hope is I have the capacity to set a goal. I know how to set a goal. And that's not easy because let me tell you something. I have taught, taught graduate school for 20 years. I used to teach this class on empowerment where people would set goals and they would turn them in. And out of you know 40 graduate students, two would have an accurate goal. Hmm. Um, What's an accurate goal? An accurate goal is observable, measurable, and you can actually – you have control over the change. So if your goal is, you know, I'm going to get in shape for my reunion, like that would be a goal that I'd see. And so when, when people walk in – when I walk in, people ooh and ah. You have no control over that outcome. You can control the getting in shape, but you have to what's the, what is getting operationalize it. So goal setting is very specific, and a lot of people set goals based on how other people will respond, which you can't control. So goal is how do you set a goal? So as an organizer, would a goal be like I'm gonna get a hundred calls to the congressman? Yes, yes. a goal is a hundred calls to the and and I would get more specific if okay. if you know as an ex again community organizer, I would say a hundred calls with this messaging, in this time period, with this result. Okay. And the result would be, like, to pass the legislation or something else? No, because I, I can't control the legislation. Uh, so, asking, yeah, like, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Processing in real time. <laughs> no, I think the result is, um, realistically... Like getting a response. Getting a response. An agenda item gets added to committee. Okay, okay, okay. Something. Um, because the other thing is, I think, and you know, this is an organizer, an organizer who's been much more time on the ground doing it than I have. Um, you got to have some little victories. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you have to have some, it can't just be a hundred calls. If you don't have anything, you can't put, and the policy passes, right. the legislation, you know, HB 34 is gone. Right. Um, but it has to be some measurable, Hey, we got on committee, we got on the list okay. or, you know, we got a response. We're take they're taking a meeting with us. So goal, goal. I got that. Okay. Then this is the starter right here pathway okay explain i know how to get there 
I know how to get. I know how to get. I know how to achieve that goal. Okay. And this is the hardest part. If I fail, I have the capacity to plan B it. Okay. I can say with full confidence that over the last 20 years that I've been doing this research, we have lost our capacity to plan B. Keep going. We have, and, and, and people look at, you know, kids or, you know, teenagers or maybe even millennials and say, what's wrong? What's, you know, where's your grit, tenacity? If that doesn't work, plan B it. You know, what's the next, you know, keep fighting, keep getting in. But it's the parents you need to look to. It's the school systems that, you know, oh, you didn't, you forgot your lunch. Let me, you know, jump on my bicycle and ride it up there as opposed to, well, you'll be hungry today. Next time you won't forget your lunch. Mm -hmm. Um, We, that pathway piece, the the, the hardest things are, you know, goals is we can teach. Pathway is tenacity, a sense of urgency, grit, and the workaround and the, the scrappy workaround. So once I make a goal that sort of makes sense, and like it's actually a goal. Yeah. It's probably better than it's it a real sense. goal. Yeah. Pathway is the understanding. I'm repeating back so I yeah. can check for understanding. Pathway is I know I actually have like a plan to reach the goal. I do. And if that original plan doesn't work, I can think about another one. Yeah. Okay. And, and why is that so hard, do you think? Because perfectionism, failure, shame. Okay. And in the case today, and I think you and I share an interest in this conversation too, the sheer burnout and exhaustion in community organizing. Um, But I think it's more personal. I think it's more about shame. I think it's more about vulnerability. I think it's more about failure and perfectionism. Um, And it's like I think about in the addiction community, there's there's those therapists who say, look, relapse, that's a part of recovery. Hmm. Do do we believe that? I do. Okay. Yeah, I do. Because if you set up like recovery is you're never going to drink again or you're never going to watch porn again or you're never going to do this again, then there's no one that's in re- no one's in recovery. Okay. <laughs> that relapse is a part of recovery. Okay. It's not about is if it's coming. It's when it when it comes, what's your plan to get back in? Oh, interesting. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. So that in community organizing, would you not agree that failure is a part of community organizing? Yeah, yeah. With the relapse thing, how do you not – I think my father – both my parents are addicted to drugs – um, my, my father raised us. How do you, how does saying that not sort of encourage people to relapse as opposed to, yeah. like, you, like, what's the fine line between saying, if, when you say, like, oh, it's coming, people are like, well, I guess that means that I can, as opposed to sort of being in a place where they, where people feel like they must, or like something, do you get what I'm saying? I think saying that to someone, you know, as someone who's been sober for 22 years, okay. I think saying that to someone <laughs> is, not going to cost. <laughs> That's not going to be the thing. <laughs> That's okay. not going to be the thing. You're like, oh, in that case, you're right, like, you're like, there's yeah. five thousand in ca- that. In that case, okay. my birthday, Christmas. Okay. You know, like, you know, yes. there's five thousand. Hard day at work, okay. but I will tell you this. Oh, I'm, I'm going on one of those little side things, but I like it. I will tell you this: that what we know about the vulnerability of joy is that an intensely positive or joyful event is more likely to trigger relapse in an intensely painful what? event. Yes. Let's finish with hope and then we need to come okay, back to that. Gotta, I'm going to write that on my, I don't have a piece of paper, everybody. I'm writing this in the air. Yeah. Because, I got to hear that. Yeah. We got to hear that because it, it has a huge implication for activism. Well, okay. Let's okay. Get, so, so, so pathway. Goal, goal, set the goal. That's a real goal. Pathway. Pathway is I can achieve the goal. And if I don't achieve it that way, I can think of another way. Yeah, I can find the path to the goal. And if the path, like if it ends up being a dead end or like, you know, leads me to the swamp um i can either like build a boat or i can find another path but i i get pathway is not just like this is how i'm going to do it and if it doesn't work i'm giving up (laughs) this is the agency 
I believe in my ability to do it. That's the word, right? Agency. I got yeah. that right. I was like, I hope I remember it. It was right. agency. Yeah. Okay. I believe. Go ahead one more time. Wicked, scary memory. I, um, I believe in my ability to do this. I believe in my ability. Of the three, what's the hardest? Or are they all hard differently? They're all hard differently, and it, it's completely individually contextualized. So I think for me, um, reality check. I think for me, goal is the hardest. Because I don't, I have no, the part of my brain that controls for like reasonable time expectations and getting stuff done expectations is broken. Um, and so I set goals that are, you know, measurable, observable, but not realistic. And I'm not realistic, I'm not realistic about the resources and costs they're going to be to me. But I, I'm freaking tenacious as they come. Like, and, and I've got a lot of agency. I believe in my ability to get done. And how do we understand realistic in the context of like us fighting the status quo, right? Because, like, as an organizer, yeah. some people want us to aim low because they're like, well, this is the system. And we're like, oh, no, 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 no. We yeah. can't. So how do, you think, how do we think about that? I think you have to do achievable goals that ladder up to changing the world. But I think changing the world is a suck goal um, in terms of hopefulness. Because if your goal is to change the world and that is just not operationalized in a way. It, it, it leads to less hope. And this is what we're seeing in activism right now. It leads to despair because you know what? Like I go to bed at one o'clock in the morning and I spend my day busting my ass doing things to, to make the world a better place. And I wake up Tuesday morning at five and it's still a hard place and someone else has been murdered. And, you know, and that leads to despair. Yeah. That leads to, oh my God, tomorrow is going to be just like today. Take me back to the the joy and relapse, because that is like completely, okay. yeah. you're blowing my mind here. Well, we've talked about joy a lot, the two of us, I yes. think a little bit at least. Um, and why people are afraid of it. Yes. So because it's probably the most vulnerable human emotion that we experience. So, you know, how many of us in the moment of joy and celebration kind of snap to it and start dress rehearsing tragedy in that moment? Like, right. yeah. you know, something good's happening. So when you have lost a capacity for vulnerability. Um, and and we've talked about this too. I think trauma, one of the greatest casualties of trauma is it takes away our capacity. It, it corrodes our capacity for vulnerability because we're in the water focusing on breath. I don't have time to be like, I don't have time to be vulnerable. Right. right. And I can't open my heart space to you when I have to armor up every day to stay alive. Correct. Right? The seeing the constraint actually is a survival. Right. right, right, yeah. And it's and it's not it's not different. Like when I when I speak to I did a focus group of mothers raising black sons. The language, you could replace that language with what I hear about vets coming home from active duty talking about why they can't be vulnerable. Vulnerability is death. This armor this keeps me alive. Right. Like really. And so so imagine you've got armor on or imagine you've numbed affect or emotion with addiction, with drugs, whatever you use, money, sex, booze, whatever. And now all of a sudden you're clean. And so the best way I can think of, the best analogy I can give you is one time I went to my therapist and I said, and it was, it was like I've been sober for 20 years, but really thinking about food and not numbing with food. And I went in and I said, you know, I'm really like no sugar, no flour. And I'm like you're gonna have to give me some kind of medication. And she's like, why? And I said, because now I'm like a turtle without a shell in a briar patch. Like everything, everything hurts, like everything. And 
she's like, okay. And I said, yeah, I need some anti-anxiety meds or something. Like, I can't do this. And she's like, or you could get out of the fucking briar patch. So that's, that's for me, I can get out of the briar patch to some degree. But when you talk about layers and layers of racism, poverty, sexism, homophobia, like that's the world is a briar patch today, right? Right. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So then imagine now you're, now you don't have armor and all of a sudden you feel joy. And that's terrifying because you're, because it's the most human, most vulnerable human emotion. So let's say you've been sober for six months, like I'm pointing at DeRay, mm-hmm. and I'm one of your support systems. And then you get fired. And I'm like, I call all your, uh, you know, I'm like, hey, we need to circle up around DeRay. We need to lean in and love on him, make sure he's doing a meeting a day. You know, we need to take care of him. It's more dangerous if I get a call from you and say, hey, I just got promoted. Because joy is so hard to feel because we're so afraid of getting blindsided by pain. We're so afraid that something bad's going to happen and catch us in this vulnerable moment of being joyful. You know, we don't want to get sucker punched. No one wants to get sucker so punched. So we numb? So we numb or we dress rehearse tragedy. So why, So is the, is the relapsing numbing or dress rehearsing tragedy? It's numbing. It's numbing. It's, it's, I can't take it. Like I remember an interview. It's very hard to talk about. I don't talk about it very often. An interview with a vet who was in prison and one of my graduate assistants did the interview. And... We were, he, she was talking to him about vulnerability, and he said, yeah, one morning, and this is not even why I was in jail, one morning I was standing over the crib of my 18-month-old, and he was sleeping, and I just punched him in the head. Hmm. And I get that, because you're st- what is more vulnerable than standing over your child and thinking, Jesus, there, there's no armor there. Like, this is, a, this is an 18-month-old, you know? And the joy and the love is so, haven't you ever had that feeling mm-hmm. where the joy and the love is so overwhelming? Yeah. You're like... You picture something horrific happening in that second. So. So why did he punch him? Just an overwhelming sense of, just an overwhelming sense of lack of control. Can't protect him. Can't do anything. Just. Mm. Like the pain's going to come anyway The pain's coming. Like the pain's coming. So we have to create spaces as activists. And I also think in schools or another place where people can take the armor off. Even if you look at them and say, I understand you're going to pick it up off the coat rack on your way out because of the world that we live in right now. But here we need to practice that with each other. We need to be able to be seen by each other. We need to know joy. We need to celebrate those successes, those small successes. Mm-hmm. Because if we don't, you know, you show me someone's capacity for joy and I'll show you, I'll tell you almost probably quantitatively what their capacity for vulnerability is. And out of vulnerability comes love, belonging, empathy, accountability, adaptability to change. You know, it's if we're not fighting for that, what are we fighting for? In 20 years, we'll look back and either be like, that was a really cool moment of like energy and activism and like, wow, that was really incredible. Or we'll look back and be like, wow, they they changed systems and structures that like I feel like we're it's like a toss up right now between like what the outcomes will be. In that, like, it seems like there are more of us than them. Like, we have a lot of energy. Like, we're morally right. But that doesn't alone, like, equal the outcome we want. It's like, what is the, what are your thoughts on, like, the the what? I don't know. Just humbled by it, scared by it, don't know the answer. Pray that we look back in 20 years and say, in the face of the biggest threat to democracy and equality, 
we stood up and prevailed. And I believe it. I, I do believe in the long arc. That's very fa- King Faith, the faith versus hope. Faith is about certainty. That yeah. he says, like, the arc bends towards yeah. justice. But we would say that it's, like, hope-based is that the arc bends because people bend it. Yeah. I I think, I wish I knew. I don't know. I There's a difference between knowing and, and having to believe, right? And I'm in, I'm in the having to believe space today. I'm going to keep working my ass off. Yeah. But I have to believe. But when I see things, let me tell you what, 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 let me tell you the biggest bolus of hope that I've had. I'm ready. You're going to laugh. What is it? Beyonce at Coachella. That's great. Baychella, actually. Baychella, for sure. Um, Because, like, I love her music. I am a huge marching band, like, marching band contest person. I love it. Yeah. So, I mean, like, so that was, like, you know. like, I'm home. Yeah. No, I'm home. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and so. She's from here. All good things. I completely forgot about that. All good things emerge from H-Town. Yeah. I love it. but if you don't think that was a radical movement in politics, like then you didn't, you, we were watching different things. Like there is a way to help. It was beautiful and subversive in the most powerful way possible. Subversive because it, it sort of like addresses these issues of self-doubt and like how yes. to subversive, how? Subversive exactly like that. Like we're not going anywhere. You don't get to determine whether this sticks or not. This is done. Mm-hmm. Did you see the moment where she's like, I'm the first black woman to headline, and she's like, ain't that a B? Yeah. And you're like, you're right. You yeah, know? no, it is. And when there were symbolic moments of blackness and pride, you saw the, you could hear the audience. I watched the audience reaction. It's not just when Destiny's Child came out or just when, you know, Jay-Z came out. It was like when there were symbolic moments of blackness and of, of, of greatness. And the world may try to put the, propose those as mutually exclusive, but they're not. You heard the audience go crazy. Did you see the uh, post from Miss Tina? No. On, um, on Instagram, she, um, you know, Beyonce has so few quotes in the world. Yeah. And so she, so Miss Tina wrote, um, I told Beyonce that I was afraid that the predominantly white audience at Coachella would be confused by all the black culture and the black college culture because it was something that they might not get. Her brave response to me made me feel a bit selfish and ashamed. She said, I've worked very hard to get to a point where I have a true voice. And at this point in my life and my career, I have responsibilities to do what's best for the world and not what is most popular. Oh my God. We should in there. Isn't that like. Yes. I mean. And that is that is amazing. So all it goes back to the nonprofits. It goes back to everything. If you have a voice, I mean, I, I, I doubt she does things for free. Don't be afraid of the value that you attach to what you do. But make sure you're using that voice to make the world a better place. It's a good place to end. Yeah. Where can people go to find you? Uh, BreneBrown.com. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> Uh, everybody, we consider Brene uh, not only a friend of the pod, but pod family. So great to have you again. And uh, I can't wait to see what we can do together. Oh, me too. Thank you for being brave. And thank you for using your voice to make the world a better, braver place. Boom. And thanks so much for listening to Pod Save the People. Make sure that you tell a friend about the pod. Make sure that you rate us wherever you get your podcast, And I'll see you back here next week.